Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, Phil Goldfeder away on assignment this week here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And thanks for joining us for a tumultuous week in politics. And uh, election elections never stop. We've talked about this upcoming special election coming up this coming Tuesday, March 13th, in western Pennsylvania, a district that the president, Trump, carried by 20 points. Now it seems that Republicans are going to snatch defeat from the hands of victory, from the jaws of victory, I think is the correct saying. They're already gearing up for losing this seat, which... Well, special elections are never a bellwether, but occasionally they are, and it's got to be very disheartening for Republicans, not just because the—well, we'll see what happens. I mean, but the fact that they might lose this seat is uh, should be sending shivers through every Republican out there. If they can lose a district like this that the president won by 20 points, which is the blue-collar, the quintessential blue-collar Trump Democrat-type— district who's disaffected and who is frustrated politics and whose jobs have been lost, etc., then they can essentially lose anywhere. Now, that's actually not the case. I don't think that uh, many of the districts are very safe and many, you know, districts have been gerrymandered and been drawn to favor incumbents, but there are many places. And remember, it's a 25 seat swing overall to for the Democrats to take the House if they can lose here, they can lose a lot of districts come November. And you have a couple lessons potentially from this that they're already thinking about. And I want to we'll unpack this next week because it doesn't make sense to kind of go ahead and analyze an election. But you have a situation here where the GOP doesn't get their preferred candidate. They get, uh, and it's said that they preferred uh, one or two others, a uh, little older. Uh, candidate without a real fundraising infrastructure, meaning State Senator Joe Saccone, uh, had a voting record on a number of issues. And the Democrats got their kind of poster perfect candidate, Condor Lamb, Marine veteran, federal prosecutor, 33 years old, no voting record, of course, never held office before. He can be the outsider. And the interesting thing here is that Republicans have tried to nationalize the election and tie him to Nancy Pelosi, who is very unpopular popular in middle America. At the same time, they have, uh, he has distanced himself and actually said that he will not vote for speaker for, sorry, minority leader Pelosi. And I guess a, if she wins a future, a future speaker of Pelosi, although that seems to be far off. And I'm not convinced that by any means that the Republicans are going to lose the house or the Senate this year, just because uh, of the math, and it's a, just a difficult hurdle to get over. But, but the lessons here are very clear. The president wins, and we, you know, wins Pennsylvania going away, and he wins a lot of these areas that are tailor made for the Trump message. He goes out this week and announces steel tariffs. Now, I don't know; it, it doesn't seem, and I don't have all the data that steel tariffs are still the steel mills and the steel industry is still all uh, encompassing like it once used to be, all important in Western Pennsylvania. But he goes out and announces this. Some say that there was a political pretext here. Some say that this is just because he just decided he wanted to campaign on tariffs. He wants to do tariffs. And with everything else going on 
in the White House and the world and all the swirling soap opera. He wanted to do something big and bold, and this is something big and bold. Um, We'll get to that in a second. But the underlying theme here is they're doing everything they can to pull out a victory here, meaning the White House, meaning the Republicans, they're pouring big money into this district. The Democrats are, of course, pulling big money into the district. The thing about a special election here, just to keep in mind, we had this in the Georgia 6th also. Remember, if you remember that one, uh, with Joel Ossoff uh, in as a, the Democratic darling in the northern suburbs of Atlanta, a very Republican district. That was uh, Tom Price's former district. Republicans ended up winning, and they ended up squeaking uh, that one out. Uh, but obviously, that was not a district that Trump carried by a lot. He actually only carried that district, I believe, by two points, although Tom Price, the former congressman, had carried that like by 20 points. But um, the interesting here is that they dumped so much money into these races. And the it's not that it's whoever wins and whoever loses. The whole country is focused on this race. The whole country is looking at this and saying, okay, this is a bellwether. I mean, when I say the whole country, I mean those who involved politically. Uh, the whole country is looking at this and they're saying, okay, you know, we have to win this because it's a test of our political strength going into November. And I know it's March and everybody's saying November. You know, who's thinking about November now? Well, anybody in politics right now is thinking about November. Texas just had their November primary on Tuesday. So the election season of 2018 actually has already happened. It's already started the November 2018. Keep that in mind. We'll get to that as well. Um, but as far as, you know, I think Democrats should not be overhyping their chances. But what's important here to note as we go in is whether the, if the Republicans win the seat, which they should. Right, they should even win it by a little bit. The fact that they could that this would be a seat that's in play is in and of itself problematic because this is the kind of district that is supposed to be the Trump voter. This is the quintess- this is the blue collar Midwest voter who in a you know somewhat depressed economic area that's had hard times. Now, of course, this Pittsburgh suburbs, Pittsburgh's actually doing pretty well as a city uh, overall. And, you know, a lot of the manufacturing steel jobs are now replaced by healthcare and technology jobs, a lot of it driven by universities. And, and Pittsburgh is kind of back from, from what, you know, they say. But the issue here is that the fact that this was even in play is it means that a lot of voters have turned on the president. You know, voters can be fickle. And since November of 2016, they are now seeing a lot of things that they potentially don't like. Now, of course, a guy like Connor Lamb probably wouldn't have four million dollars to spend on this if it wasn't a special election. You wouldn't have found him. You wouldn't have think this was competitive. No money would have gone towards him. No energy would have gone to him. He certainly wouldn't have had Joe Biden come in, too campaign with him. And of course, Joseph Cohn would not have President Trump going to campaign with him or Mike Pence coming to him or anybody coming to campaign with him. So there's a big difference in the way these special elections go because there's nothing else going on. It's almost like there's nothing else on TV. So you go ahead and watch a bad show and you get interested in it because there's nothing else on. Uh, you know, I can't really, uh, you know, say that I know much about that, but uh, I'll say right now that I don't uh, that that's not that's kind of the idea here. There's nothing else to watch, so we watch this. Uh, overall, when we think about it, um, it's still a tough road for the Democrats to go ahead and take the House, but they can. 
but they can. There are enough seats out there that should be in play that will allow them to do it. And we don't have any idea right now where kind of where the White House is going to be and where the president is going to be. To get back to the tariff issue for a second. So I, I don't know how the people out there feel about tariffs, but it, from my point of view, this is just incredibly bad policy. And it's always actually been a democratic policy is like, let's be more protectionist. We are to trade. Republicans are always the free traders. And, you know, I guess moderate Republicans, you know, Bill Clinton brought us NAFTA. And overall, you know, trade unifies countries. It makes them more. I mean, look at the EU. There are a lot of problems in the EU. But overall, there hasn't been a war in Europe since the EU was created. And Europe was responsible for many of the wars and geopolitically. But it's also been a tremendous benefit for many and left out some. I mean, that's that's always going to be the case. Um, but, you know, there's like 150,000 steel jobs or maybe 500,000 steel and aluminum jobs here. And there are about 5 million people or more who rely on steel, their jobs, you know, rely on steel products. Anybody who makes a car, any anybody who, you know, any of these things that rely on steel, their prices are going to go up. And by virtue, our prices are going to go up. So all the goodwill that's lost, it's like, why, why give a tax cut? Why put more money in people's pockets if you're, in fact, going to take it away with higher costs? I mean, that's essentially what a trade war does. It leads to higher costs. And why are we looking for that? We should be going towards a situation of trying to give benefit to the American economy, to the American consumer. <coughs> Excuse me. And overall, it's just bad policy. It, it almost smacks ourselves, if you think back to the rollout of the travel ban, where the president goes ahead and announces something, the White House goes ahead and announces something, but it's, there's no implementation. Nobody actually is out there on the ground. They don't notify the agencies. They don't have buy-in from as to how it's going to be implemented. They don't issue guidance. This is the same thing with the trade war here. I mean, if you think about it here, the last couple of days, you know, the president goes out and announces something and says, I want to do this. But nobody out there actually is looking to do it. You actually have to, you know, in order to initiate a trade war, the it has to be a national security issue. There has to be a waiver. There has to be paperwork. There has to be a process by which you're doing. Now, we don't really have a process right now, according to many in the White House, because Rob Porter has left. And now, of course, Gary Cohn has left over this tariff issue. You know, there is, in fact, uh, from what many people are saying, not a great process going on in the White House. And how does this get implemented? Now, of course, every country out there is going to go out, every industry out there is going to go out and hire lobbyists, as they did, and they're going to pay lobbyists to get them off the trade list and to get them the exemptions. And that's essentially what the president had campaigned on, that he was trying to reduce. Let's reduce lobbyists. Let's reduce spending a lot. Let's, let's drain the swamp. This is not draining the swamp. This is the exact opposite of draining the swamp. This is exactly what you don't want to do. You don't want to go ahead and do these haphazard policies that are not well thought and not well implemented so that people can go ahead and hire lobbyists and be effective and pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, look, if you're in the government relations business, uh, as I dabble in, that's great. I mean, it's it's great if there's a little bit of chaos out there because it actually helps uh, those who are in the know, but it's terrible policy. And I think you know, if I'm Gary Cohn, and I don't know the reasons for him resigning, I'm assuming it's over the tariffs, and why would he work in an administration that repudiates everything he believes in and let's remember Gary Cohn was a a Democrat you know New York Democrat but he did have some success I mean the fact that the tax plan got done is a is a testament to his gravitas and his ability to to master policy and I think it's very significant Uh, a friend of mine was working working for him who left as well but I have to say I mean he was 
you know, he was a serious grown-up guy who knew markets and stuff. Now, the other thing is interesting, of course, is that you expected a huge dip in the stock market, which actually didn't happen. The markets could would definitely be reacting very, ne- very, very negatively when it comes to tariffs, because those are certainly hurt more companies than they help, and a trade war would hurt many companies in the United States. I know the president thinks that the trade wars are easy to win, but trade wars have a tendency to escalate, at least historically, very, very quickly. But the question is, is who is tempering these, you know, we had this whole idea that there were going to be people around the president who were going to be tempering his instincts on this, or at least to just roll out policy and roll out communications in a way that's not haphazard. I mean, just the, the way around this of you don't want to go ahead and not really have the ability, it, you didn't brief members of Congress, you didn't brief the congressional leadership who are not on board. There's all kinds of things that you didn't do in advance of something that's very, very momentous, that is a big step back from where, from Republican policy, from Republican orthodoxy, from Republican uh, beliefs. And, you know, okay, the president's not a Republican, but, or he hasn't been a Republican. I'm not sure how to say His president's not really conservative. I mean, he's a populist. He's a populist nationalist. Let's go with that. He's not, certainly no classical Republican. And when you have that type of chaos, all you're doing is feeding the swamp and feeding this enduring perception that uh, Washington just can't work and they're just kind of throwing stuff against the wall to see if it happened. Now, of course, if the politics are involved that he did this just to influence the race in Western Pennsylvania, that, of course, is very troubling. I mean, that's <coughs> wouldn't be the first time that somebody did policy because of politics, but it's a little bit upsetting. Now, of course, there's also this idea that there's distractions going on. This episode with uh, Stormy Daniels going on. I, it's amazing that, you know, this hasn't been stopped building for a couple of weeks, but now it's back on the front thing. Um, and it, it's not, I mean, it's not the fact that the president may have had an affair. And I mean, it's the clear misleading of the public by the White House and uh, by uh, President's lawyer, Michael Cohen. There's no way that a lawyer, and what I'm referring to is the fact that there was a settlement, uh, a non-disclosure agreement that was reached, $130,000 payment was made. They admit that. They admit that that was the case, that there was $130,000 payment made to Michael Cohen. Now, Michael Cohen, president's lawyer, uh, a good, very effective defender of the president forever, I mean, he's been there for a long time, says he made the payment out of his own pocket. Now, for a couple of reasons, that, of course, makes no sense, uh, that he made a hundred thirty thousand dollar payment without consulting his client, without and just fronted it for his client without any expectation that he was going to be paid back and reimbursed or any consideration whatsoever. That, of course, I, he'd probably be the first lawyer that I've ever heard of doing that. I mean, that would be great if the lawyers themselves would pay the settlements that they reach, but that doesn't happen. And now you say the president has no knowledge of it. Well. Who, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense that this would happen, that a payment would be made on somebody's behalf that we don't know, and it's it just is not a believable, realistic story. And then the White House, of course, refers to the fact that a arbitration was won, and that, of course, means that somebody knew about it. And you know, it's, if Michael Cohen is, in fact, acting on behalf of not his client without talking to his client, that, of course, would be problematic 
as well. So the story itself is is bad. And yes, it's salacious. Yes, you don't want to have it. Yes, you have pictures with them. But this has got to be a very big distraction, not necessarily politically, not necessarily in the Oval Office, but possibly on the second floor of the White House, uh, because I can't imagine that the First Lady is too happy with these headlines. Now, of course, the best thing probably, well, there's no good damage control left in the the White House because, uh, unfortunately for them, uh, people have left. I mean, you know, Hope Hicks is leaving. Uh, Josh Raphael, who's uh, Jared Kushner's uh, press person, is leaving or left. I mean, uh, Gary Cohen, of course, left. You know, I know that I've said this before, and people feel that this is not the, you know, you, you can only judge the president by the ballot box and that he got elected in November 16, and that's it. We had to wait another four years to see how people really feel about him. But you got to take it in a way from the people who know him best and are working with him. And the turnover in this White House is absolutely unprecedented. It's, it's twice as much as anybody else has had. And at the senior levels, it's incredible. I mean, you look at these early pictures, there's nobody left, maybe except for Kellyanne Conway who, or Jared Kushner. Um, and you know, we'll get to Jared Kushner in a second because you know, he, of course, has been the subject of, uh, of discussion. It's, there doesn't seem to be a ability to kind of steady have a steady course, have a normal week without some sort of soap opera. Now, a lot of people out there enjoy the soap opera. I enjoy the soap opera to a little bit. I know that People, you guys out there also enjoy the soap opera. You guys enjoy the idea that there's always something, there's always going to be an interesting, juicy headline every day about something that happened in the White House that something did. And, you know, but remember in The Apprentice, they got down to one person. You can't operate the U.S. government with one person as an apprentice. You can't just whittle down and have an attrition. And the president said this week, well, Everybody wants to work here. I have 10 applicants for every person, but jobs are not going filled. And forget about, I mean, I know it's the White House, but the administration, ambassadorships are not filled. We have key ambassadorships that are not filled. And it's, you can't just, you know, be left with the president and General Kelly and Ivanka and Jared and maybe a couple other people running the whole U.S. government. I mean, for example, you know, Jared Kushner goes to Mexico this week. Now, we have a whole thing, of course, with Mexico that the president was, and Mexico is an important ally of ours, as is Canada and, you know, the two countries that the president has essentially threatened with tariffs, um, you know, by the national security issue, right? We're saying we need our steel because it's national security. We need to have steel in a time of war. Those are the talking points that I saw. The idea that Canada, when we go to war, would not be our ally and give us steel, I'm a little bit surprised that somebody feels that way. Uh, Love and respect the Canadians, and I think they would be there for us. But having said that, the president of Mexico won't come to the White House, and they can't have a summit meeting because because our president, Trump, refuses to back down from his insistence that Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Now, it's really up to Mexico whether they're going to pay for the wall, as far as I can say. It's not really up to the White House whether Mexico is going to pay for the wall. But there hasn't been no visit. So then Kushner goes to Mexico to meet with the president. And it's kind of not announced. It's under the radar screen. And he doesn't invite the U.S. ambassador to Mexico to attend the meeting with him. Now, you might not like the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. You might feel she might be a holdover from the Obama White House. Now, of course, the fact that she is a holdover is the White House's fault. You could have appointed a new ambassador to Mexico. There's been a long time already in which that person 
could have been appointed. But the idea that you have essentially neutralized your own ambassador who's there every day by not inviting them to a meeting with the president. I mean, can you imagine if a major figure, I mean, and let's just, let's just put this in plain terms. President Trump goes, for, goes to Israel for a meeting and meets with Bibi Netanyahu, and he doesn't invite David Friedman with him. Now, that would mean that David Friedman really is essentially neutered politically, like he has no influence. Or vice versa. Bibi comes to Washington, meets with President Trump, and doesn't invite Ron Dermer there. It's, it's inconceivable that this would happen. Now, of course, this is Jared Kushner, so it's not the president, but still, it doesn't make actually make any sense to do this to your own team. And this is the people on their own team. It, it, it's just so haphazard. It's so strange. It's such an odd thing to go ahead and do to your own people, to your own government. And, you know, this is kind of a feeling that I've had that they've never felt like they actually own the government, that they're actually there uh, in that government. Now, I, a couple more issues that I think we get to very, very quickly. And I think that, that this is, uh, yeah, I, I want to just talk about David Friedman for a second because. I see, I can't say enough good things about what David Friedman, Ambassador David Friedman, has done since he has been in uh, office. And he's basically told it like it is. I mean, for a lot of us out there who have said, and, you know, kind of like Nikki Haley has done at the UN, but you know, he hasn't backed down from the criticism that he's gotten. And, you know, I mean, when he, he's criticizing. Palestinian terrorists and Haaretz is going after him because they're killing people from the territories and somehow that should be okay and he shouldn't lament that and he's divisive. Now, Jay Street goes after him and he gives a speech and he goes gets up at APAC and David Freeman, you'll get to APAC in a second, it was this week, and David Freeman gets up there and says, the idea, it's outrageous to call yourself pro-Israel, pro-peace, or the, the pro-Israel, pro-peace. It's because pro-Israel, pro-peace, of course, is completely reasonable. But it implies that APAC or everybody else is not pro-peace. And this idea that if you don't kowtow and you don't go ahead and appease the Palestinians and, and, and the world on the con Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it makes it sound, of course, that Israel is the unreasonable one. And, of course, J Street takes out full-page ads in the New York Times this past Sunday with the empty seats at the table, at the peace table, meaning Trump and Netanyahu. But there's no, of course, they don't blame the Palestinians. They don't blame Abbas. And Abbas is the one who says he won't come to the table. They won't negotiate. Right? When the United States is out, we won't talk to you anymore. So, but yet Jay Street, of course, finds reason to blame Israel. So David Friedman, of course, has the, and he's blaming the U.S. as well. So why shouldn't the U.S. respond? You know, he's not meddling in Israeli politics. Jay Street is criticizing the U.S. government. So there's no reason that he shouldn't weigh in on that. And, you know, David Friedman, important point, and I think that this is the key point here. If you support Israel, then you must, by definition, support peace with its neighbors. It is no less than blasphemous to suggest that any Jew or any Christian is against peace. And that's the point here, is the idea here that you would support, that you support Israel, that you support its right to security, that its right to live in peace with its neighbors, doesn't mean you're anti-peace. It means you're waiting for the other side to get around to the idea that there can be peaceful coexistence. And, you know, that is where that is where the messaging is. You know, we, we kind of lose on the messaging. This idea that peace means appeasement, that peace means giving in to the worst instincts of 
the PLO and, and Abbas and his and and of course Hamas. And uh, I think that's important. And it's you know, it's kind of the first time that we've had a U.S. official, U.S. ambassador, say the things that are true. Now, APAC for a second. Uh, of course, once again, uh, if you've never gone politically, I strongly urge you to do that. Uh, it's a, you know, it's so big that 18,000 people, it's so big, it's more like a convention as opposed to really, and, you know, I don't want to, uh, kudos to the people at APAC, uh, particularly my friend Jason Coppell, the Northeast political director, uh, who who in, who invited me, uh, and, but it's, it's, you know, it's not intimate anymore. Uh, a couple things, you know, they went very hard to try and make the left feel and make progressives feel at home and feel welcome. And there were a lot of sessions about home one can be both progressive and pro-Israel. Now, if you're a conservative like me, you're feeling it's a little off-putting. When you think about it, I am not of the opinion that I want the Democratic Party to be anti-Israel just to, so Republicans can do better. I mean, politically, that, you know, makes some sense. But from Israel as a Jew, that doesn't make me, that would not necessarily make me happy. I don't want that to happen. So I like the idea that APAC is doing that. And they're basically trying to say, you know, don't go to J Street, which is not pro-Israel. And you should be with us because we're a big tent organization. And we are, we are ability, if you want to be pro-Israel, we are a home for you. Uh, now, of course, you know, if you're more conservative, you're a little bit uh, nervous, you know, the CEO of APAC, you know, got up there and, you know, pushed for, you know, two-state solution. And of course, but that's the official policy of the U.S. government and to some degree of the uh, uh, Israeli government that that should be a solution, a settlement eventually, and, you know, get that. But that is, you know, that is kind of the feeling that a lot of people had. Well, you know, the conference is, you know, they move left because they move too far right. Uh, in the in the last two years, and people are angry about Trump, so we want to have a lot of it. You know, you have this interesting uh, dynamic where ma- many of the Jews, particularly non-Orthodox Jews, are, and I spoke to a lot of people, not Trump fans, um, but they are Trump fans when it comes to Israel, and they're certainly Nikki Haley fans when it comes to the UN. It's kind of easy. It's kind of that layup out there. I was at a panel uh, with John Bolton, and of course, you know, first thing he does is criticize the UN. And yeah, of course, everybody laughs. It's like kind of, you know, throw the red meat out there. Uh, what pro-Israel group is not going to hate the United Nations? So it's, it's uh, you know, those are the those are the layups out there. Um, you know, as we wrap up, that's the, in- I think there was a lot of interesting stuff. And if you haven't, you know, if you want to be involved and engage politically, it's a good idea to go next year to the 2019 policy conference. You get a feel for what it means to be activists and see activists from around the country. Go lobby on the Hill. If you've never done it, it's an easy thing. Everybody should be, everybody out there should be engaged to the extent that they feel comfortable calling their congressional office, emailing their congressional office, Congress senator, on issues, at going to Washington to see them, or going here in district, wherever you live, to go ahead and speak to your congressional office. These people, they work for you. Uh, they want to meet you. They want to hear your opinions. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, very interesting dynamic going on, and I'd like you know Phil in the future weeks to kind of opine on this, this Democratic civil war going on now, potentially in New York State between the mayor and the governor. It's been going on for a long time, but now officially it looks like Mayor de Blasio is going to be supporting a primary challenger against Governor Cuomo, and that is in the form of Cynthia Nixon, an actress, uh, 
and uh, I guess relatively famous actress from New York, uh, TV show actress, and it looks like she, he is going to be supporting uh, Nixon to run against Cuomo in a primary. And this is significant, of course, because uh, four years ago, Zephyr Teachout got 40% in a Democratic primary. And um, in the end, Cuomo only got about 50, I think 51%. Uh, and lost, you know, most of upstate, and he loses a lot of candidates. And, you know, we'll see the activist base of the Democratic Party, uh, even with $35 million in the bank, the governor should be a little bit worried as he moves into 2018. Now, of course, the Blasio continues to, I think, have political fumbles. Uh, he, he uh, once again, was traveling or was trying to travel last week to a... Uh, uh, union events uh, for a union that a New York City union that was having an event in Atlanta. So he had to go there to speak to them because, of course, he couldn't go there. And and instead of going to parades in his own city um, and, you know, go ahead and, you know, he tells the agencies not to travel, cut their travel budget. But he goes ahead and, you know, spends uh, tens of thousands of dollars on travel around the country for a purpose, I guess, of running for president. Okay, he's entitled. That's what politicians do. Uh, but I have to say, it is a little bit surprising. And the big thing with regard to the Democratic Party that we'll have to get into is the whole Linda Sarsour, uh, Louis Farrakhan, Women's March situation, where leaders of the Women's March and the Women's Movement have uh, been praising the anti-Semitic Louis Farrakhan and the somehow the condemnation of racism doesn't extend itself to the Jews uh, because people like Linda Sarsour refuse, who was a Democratic darling in many quarters, refuse to condemn it. So we're going to have to get to that in a future uh, show. Thanks for joining us here this week on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs here on the Nachum Siegel Network.